This is Covering Their Tracks, the extraordinary story of a global corporation's denial of its history and how storytelling can be used to confront the past and achieve justice. I'm Matthew Slutsky. This is Episode 3, The Hearing. We started our series by explaining the role the SNCF, France's National Railroad, played in transporting Jews towards Auschwitz during the Holocaust. Then we met one of the passengers on those trains, Leo Bretholtz. Now we explore how Leo's life and the lives of his fellow survivors intersect with the SNCF once again. Integral to this story is a remarkable woman, Rosette Goldstein. How can you give the French Railroad, how can you even consider them when they took 76,000 people to their death? So that opened everything up, and, and they went crazy because they read it out loud. And some of the people from French Railroad were there. While Leo and his attorney, Rafi Prober, were working to stop the SNCF from bidding on high-speed rail contracts across the U.S., Rosette Goldstein was in Florida, fighting the SNCF there. What you just heard was Rosette talking about a 2009 public meeting where the Florida Department of Transportation was soliciting community feedback on a proposed $2.6 billion high-speed rail project, which would connect Tampa and Orlando. When the SNCF donated $80,000 to fund Holocaust education in Florida with the condition that they would help shape the curriculum, Rosette fought them in the press, forcing the state to give back the money. We reached out to SNCF for comment. They never responded. That said, SNCF America wasn't going down without a fight. They were bringing out the big guns in their PR battle. Here's their president, Alan LeRae, at a Holocaust Museum event they sponsored in Florida. We were a cog in this enormous extermination machine, this Nazi extermination machine. Of course, we have acknowledged we were a cog, and, and we have expressed very sincere regrets. These kinds of events provided opportunistic inroads to the Jewish community. SNCF donated money to museums, they put up plaques, funded Holocaust education, and more. And when they did, Rosette countered their story by telling her own. Rosette, then Rosette Adler, was just three years old when things started to get dangerous for Jews in France. When her father, David, was in a local village to buy food for his family, he met a non-Jewish farmer named Monsieur Martin, and they became friendly. Mr. Adler ultimately asked a heartbreaking question. Could Rosette hide at the Martin family farm until things improved? So Monsieur Martin said, yes, we have three daughters. We'll have four. There's not too many people who would do something like this. For a time, Rosette felt safe with this new family, and every night Rosette's father would come and visit her. But she was aware of the danger. As little as I was, I knew. I knew that I was being hunted. I knew that I was a Jew, and that's the reason I was being hunted. I was waiting there. All of a sudden, I see Monsieur Martin and his 
horse and carriage and he stops in front of me and grabs me and says they were all taken. I never saw my dad again. Now you know why I fight. Rosette's father had been forced onto an SNCF cattle car and deported. He was first sent to Auschwitz and then on to Buchenwald, where he died. This tragedy would propel Rosette for the rest of her life. Even in her 70s, she continued to seek justice. Here's lawyer Rafi Prober again. You wouldn't think that people at that age, at that stage of their life, are, you know, going to hop out of bed and go meet with senators and staffers and try to advocate for something that might not actually impact them in their lives. But they did. Rosette did. Because time was running out. Other survivors were dying, and legal solutions were not working. For example, in 2010, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger vetoed a California bill that would have forced all rail companies hoping to do business in the state to disclose their activities during World War II. And so Rafi Prober and Harriet Taman, they needed a new strategy. When Leo and Rosette told their stories, they were incredibly effective. So the lawyers got the survivors talking, and it worked. The more they spoke out, the more coverage the issue got. One morning, an article about the SNCF caught Maryland-based lobbyist Aaron Greenfield's eye. The article discussed how SNCF took 76,000 Jews and prisoners of war and gypsies, as they called them, to death camps and were paid per head per kilometer. Greenfield immediately grabbed the phone and called Harriet Taman. She was like, that's terrific. Love to have you on board. We don't have any money. And I said, well, Harriet, I'm not asking to get compensated. Then she directed me to Rafi Prober, where, you know, it was brought into the fold. The timing was perfect. A new line of attack presented itself in 2010 when an SNCF-affiliated company called Keolis started bidding to operate a commuter rail line in Maryland known as Mark Train. Here was a chance to put survivors face-to-face with the SNCF. Greenfield picked up the phone again and called Maryland State Delegate Kirill Resnick. He invited me to meet Leo and some of the other survivors. They had arranged for a meet and greet in one of our little conference rooms. And I came in, I met Leo, and uh, explained to me the situation with SNCF, the history of it, and how they were asking for this legislation to simply open up the archives in France. Greenfield also reached out to delegate Sandy Rosenberg. Aaron said, you know, you want to meet your witness. You learned that in your first year of law school, right? You want to personalize your issue. Whatever the issue is, you want to personalize it. You don't want it to be some abstract presentation. Who better than somebody who is on one of those goddamn trains? plan to get at the French company through its American subsidiary was a long shot. And Keolis wasn't technically the SNCF. But even if they were, the SNCF was quite skillful with their messaging. 
As if the film we talked about in episode one weren't example enough, in the mid-1990s, they produced the Bachelier Report, which detailed their role in World War II. The problem was that it was mostly useless, as many French and American scholars pointed out. However, it did at least accuse the SNCF of concealing and destroying archival materials. In 2000, the SNCF funded a historical commission to review the company's history. In an outcome that shocked exactly no one, the commission reinforced the SNCF's narrative that the SNCF was essentially powerless under Nazi control. The SNCF was clearly trying to show the world that they weren't complicit. Whether they meant it or were just protecting their business was up for debate. Historian Sarah Fetterman lays out one perspective. So if you go to any kind of Holocaust event today in France, you will likely see an SNCF logo somewhere. They sponsor so many things that have been really meaningful to people. They've put up plaques at railway stations all over the city. Some of the plaques say people were deported here. Sometimes it says the heroic railway workers. They're about both. But those little things mattered to people. Now, they were dragged into it, too. I mean, they weren't super excited about this initially. But now they engage, and I don't think you know, they should continue to be punished for taking a bit to get going because not a lot of companies modeled it well. They weren't hiding. I mean, you want to talk about hiding. <laughs> There's a tons of companies out there that aren't really talking about the details of what happened during World War II. For Prober and Taman, as the Maryland-Mark contract battles were heating up, the SNCF was yet again doubling down to actively cover up its tracks. They put up a nice-looking website with all of these myths versus facts and other information on reparations programs. It was largely bullshit. When you sort of dug in on this stuff, the myth versus fact were undercut by historical truths and realities. The reparations programs that they pointed to didn't apply to the folks we represented. It was just a big smokescreen. This ad ran in one of the local Jewish newspapers, and it said, Were you affected by the Nazi deportations from France during World War II? Are you the child of a parent who perished during the Nazi deportations from France in World War II? Did you have property taken from you under the anti-Semitic legislation imposed on France by the Nazi or Vichy regime during World War II? If so, you may be entitled to French financial compensation. Call this number if you need assistance during these hours. It was a BS spin campaign. The French actually did have reparations programs, but they were exclusively for French citizens. And thus, weren't going to work an ocean away in Baltimore, Maryland. Looking back, they really provided sort of a Harvard Business School case study and how not to address a crisis situation. You know, every time an article hit or every time they put out a press release about their role in the Holocaust, I couldn't help but think that this really was not in their interest. And the more they were talking about the Holocaust, the more awareness it raised about the company's role. Right before the hearing on the Mark Train was supposed to take place, the SNCF asked Delegate Sandy Rosenberg for a delay. Rosenberg called Rafi Prober, who responded with a crazy idea. I said, what would you think about saying to them, we're willing to push the hearing, but we'd like a firm commitment that the CEO is going to be there. That seemed like a Hail Mary, but you throw enough of those, one's going to connect. Next thing I know, the CEO was committed to being there. That's right. 
Along with the Keolis representatives, the CEO of SNCF America would appear in person at the Maryland State House in Annapolis. Here's Aaron Greenfield again. And we were shocked. We were shocked that they would put him in that kind of an environment where he had to respond to questions. On March 3rd, 2011, at the state capitol in Annapolis, Harriet Taman, Rafi Prober, and Leo Bretholtz joined several Maryland state delegates and, as promised, the SNCF CEO at the time, Dennis Dutte, for the hearing. Here's Leo at the hearing. I have been testifying now for many years, and this is really, I would say, the culmination of it all, to give you my testimony as to what's happened to me. Société Nationale de Chemin de Fer Français, which means the National Society of French Railroads, which was government-owned. It so happens that on the 6th of November, 1942, I was on one of those trains. I come here because I was asked to come here, but I could have said no. I have the luxury of a choice. But those who haven't survived had no luxury of choosing. So I'm speaking for them. And what we want is for SNCF to come with a clear statement of contrition and apology. Also, opening your records and do some compensation. This is what we're looking for. I was in that train, and I want you to know, they knew exactly what they were doing, no matter what they say. This book, The Memorial of the Deportations of Jews from France, contains over 70,000 names. And my name is in here. Unbelievable. The cruelty with which it was executed and the precision and deception. Over 70,000 names in here. Would you believe it? The oldest person deported during those two and a half years was born in 1849. She was 94 years old. SNCF. The youngest were children, born on the same day that they were thrown into the cattle car, often without the mother. Cruelty to the extreme. This is the story I have been telling for quite a few years. It is not easy. It isn't easy. As I said before, I have a choice. I can say, no, I don't want to testify anymore. But those who haven't survived had no choice. Thank you, sir. Let's hear from Ms. Harry-Tayman. Yes, thank you. I am Leo's lawyer, and I've been fighting on his behalf and behalf of 600 other survivors seeking justice from SNCF. Now, SNCF is going to tell you that their archives are open at Le Mans, and there is full transparency. They're not going to tell you that their archives are not centralized and their records are located in other places throughout France which are not open to the public. They are going to tell you that they were coerced to run these trains. 
But that claim is belied by the facts, it's denied by the historians, and it is rejected by the courts. The president of SNCF said in 1941, in the spirit of collaboration, we are prepared to assist Germany. From the very beginning, it was agreed that SNCF would retain the control and the responsibility for the trains, including the technical conditions of the deportations. It would have been impossible to operate the trains without SNCF. SNCF will argue that it was under threat of death. That's simply not true. The only people who were threatened were workers who smuggled arms or who revealed military secrets. One single engineer, Liam Brochard, refused to drive a train. You know what happened to him? He lost his bonus. That was it. SNCF will point to rail workers who were killed for fighting the Nazis. That's not relevant to SNCF, and SNCF should not be permitted to hide behind their bravery. Those who resisted did so as individuals and often were resisting and fighting SNCF. SNCF will argue that it's an arm of the government. It is not. It is a separate corporation under U.S. law and under French law. SNCF has never accepted moral or financial responsibility for its actions. And until it does so, it should not be permitted to get taxpayer money from the citizens of Maryland. The SNCF delegation included then-president and CEO Dennis Dutte and their official historian Jacques French. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee... I'm Dennis Dutte, president of SNCF America. We are the U.S. subsidiary of SNCF, the French National Railway, which is a wholly owned entity of the state of France. For these hearings, it is important to note that one of those nations where we provide rail services is the state of Israel. A listener might roll their eyes at Dutte's argument. A contract in Israel does not an ally make. But in talking with Prober, he assured me this kind of argument works with politicians. Even a weak tie is a tie nonetheless. And sometimes that's enough to sway someone who wants to get a deal done. Which is why Prober's team had to invest energy in a rebuttal. Anyway, back to his testimony. We feel it is important to dispel the misinformation and inaccuracies regarding SNCF and its role during World War II. SNCF's trains and railways were seized by Nazi Germany during that war. The Nazi regime controlled the railway system throughout the war and forcibly requisitioned SNCF trains for its military efforts and to transport innocent people to concentration camps. The truth is SNCF trains and facility were seized by the Nazis to deport 76,000 Jewish people and 80,000 non-Jewish people from France to the German border, where Germans took the trains on to concentration camps. It is also true that SNCF, like many other European companies, was taken over by the Nazis, its assets plundered and destroyed, and its own workers and their families threatened, and hundreds were executed. 
by Nazi foreign squads for resisting orders. Many SNCF workers who were part of French resistance were themselves deported to the Nazi death camps for their acts of defiance. The Nazi Holocaust is unspeakably horrific. The state of Maryland does not need to impose a law on SNCF or on Keolis to discuss these issues with us. We are here to discuss them with you. Then the state delegates began to ask their questions. Here's Delegate Peter F. Murphy. I thought I heard earlier in testimony that um, you claim that you were coerced. But it doesn't really connect with me that if you were coerced, that the German Nazis would then also pay you. It would seem if you were coerced, they would have no incentive. The fact that SNCF was coerced is evidenced by a number of historical documents, the best known of which is the order which was put in each and every office just one month after the armistice agreement in July 1940, and which said to all the employees that if they did not comply, they would go to German courts where the standard penalty was death not only for themselves, but for all their families. Delegate Jocelyn Peña-Melnick was next. Well, we have an invoice in the record that was provided today that my colleague, Delegate Hover, referenced to a second ago. So there is actually proof that the company was reimbursed for transportation. So my question is, that is obviously not the only one. Are there any others? There's no other that we know of. May I ask the historian, please? You are the historian, correct? Yeah. In your documents, do you have any other invoices for transportation? Sure. How I don't know. We don't know because we have only a part. There is a part of the archives. And uh, let me just let me break down the question. Yeah. Okay. The gentleman to your right, the president just stated that to his knowledge, there's no invoices of being paid. We have evidence that contradicts that. I just asked you and you stated that indeed there's some. I would like to know. Since you are the historian, right? How many other invoices, like the one we have in our record, do you possess in your custody? How many other do you possess? We don't have. We don't have. But you have to know that you have all the archives in France are open, and you have a lot of archives in different places in France and different administration. Now, Delegate Nicholas Kipke. Are you prepared to also, as you move ahead in collating documents, are you prepared to also go into these various other archives throughout France and retrieve any other documents that might be pertinent? Well, it's, it's not the role of SNCF to go into the administrative archives, which are spread all around France, to, to, to look for that. Sir, that's the only way you'll have a complete picture, isn't that true? Unless you... You go and you look, you search into these other archives and find out if there's anything there. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I guess so. We are talking about all the possible administrative archives which are spread around 50 different locations in France and which contain uh, millions and millions of documents and to, to look into those millions to find potential things that relate to SNCF. Only way you get the whole picture. 
Thank I you, don't Mr. think it's uh, Thank you, Mr. anything that the SNCF would consider. Years later, Harriet Taman gave me her thoughts on the hearing. We had members of the Maryland legislature in tears because Leo's story was so powerful. I'm a cynic. You can cry all you want, but do something. The Maryland legislature tried with requiring SNCF to open their archives, but that wasn't sufficient. And as a matter of fact, what they've done is they have set up new archives that are open, but they're the ones who transferred material from their old archives. So we don't know what they transferred. We don't know what was destroyed. Despite Harriet Taman's cynicism, the $204 million mark contract was ultimately awarded to a Canadian company called Bombardier Transportation, and not to Keolis and the SNCF. Here's Rafi Prober again. We just knew we were building to get to something, but I don't think any of us knew what it was going to look like in the end and what it would take to get there. You know, looking back, every piece, every brick was critical. And without one, you wouldn't get to the next. What would come next? That was weighing heavily on Harriet Taman's mind. Let's look back at what we heard from her in episode one. If you say to a corporation, you've done something very bad, they'll apologize, and then they'll do it again. And if you say to a corporation, you've done something very bad, and by the way, it's going to affect your bottom line, will they do it again? Probably, but they might think a little harder. A lot of our victims were quite elderly and not in good health, and they could have used some financial help. Didn't have to be a lot, but something. An apology and something. Next time on Covering Their Tracks, Taman, Prober, and the team help bring the weight of the U.S. State Department into the fray. Covering Their Tracks was hosted, reported, and researched by me, Matthew Slutsky. The series was written and produced by Courtney Hazlett, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, Eric Meyerson, Megan Lubin, and Chris Gonzalez. Editing, engineering, and mixing by Eric Meyerson, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. Our theme song, Tall Grass, was composed and performed by Robert Berger. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you to Blue Chalk Media, including Greg Moyer, Pam Hewling, Julianne Sato-Parker, Amy Polanski, and Mariko Fujinaka. Head to our show notes for more information about tablet podcasts or visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.